If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. In the last verse of this chapter, Paul mentions something that he has already uh, touched on in verse 17. And he uses a rhetorical device to make his point in the illustration known as personification. Now, Webster defines personification as the attribution of human nature or character to animals, inanimate objects, or abstract notions, especially as in a rhetorical figure. Now, we're familiar with this. We talk about Mother Nature. We talk about Father Time. We use expressions like uh, lightning danced across the sky or the wind was howling outside. All of that is personification. Paul uses an illustration of two rival kingdoms. And the way that he gets into it is by personifying the power of sin on the one hand and the power of grace on the other. Uh, and he compares uh, these powers to two monarchs, two kings, because kings reign. And the one king is a despot. He has invaded our world and has established ruthless control over all of humanity. And the end of this king's rule is death for everyone. The king's name is sin. The other king is a gracious ruler. He has come to save us from sin and take us into the realm of eternal joy. The end of this king's rule is eternal life. And the name of this king is grace. And that tells us something about grace that we've not really talked about much uh, so far in our study of Romans. And that is that grace is a power. We have a tendency to think of grace as an attitude. And of course it is that. We even define it that way. We, we say that grace is God's unmerited favor toward the undeserving. In fact, those who deserve the, pri the precise opposite. For all of us deserve the wrath of God. But grace gives us forgiveness and eternal life. But grace is more than an attitude. It is also a power that reaches out to save us. That uh, a power that is such that if it were not uh, so powerful, we would all perish. We make the mistake many times, even as Baptists who sing about amazing grace, we make the mistake of thinking that grace is a help toward salvation. Grace is an aid. It's kind of like, you know, crutches. If you, if you break your leg or your foot, you put your own crutches, and it aids you, helps you in walking. But what Paul is describing in the book of Romans is that grace is far more than an offer of help. It is more than even help itself. To use the illustration of two rival kingdoms, Grace is an invasion by a good and legitimate king of territory that has been usurped by another. 
It's not that grace helps us. Grace is the power that enables us to be saved. Were it not for grace, we couldn't be saved. If grace did not come in and reign, we would not be saved. Oh, theologians talk about grace in many ways. One of the ways they talk about grace is irresistible grace. Is grace irresistible? Absolutely, emphatically, yes. Were it not, God's purpose could not be accomplished. God's grace accomplishes exactly what he intends it to accomplish. God's grace is the power of salvation. Uh, the battle, of course, is not visible, for it's in the spirit, spiritual realm. But the invasion of grace is every bit as powerful, as effective as the allied armies that invaded uh, the European mainland on D-Day and overthrew the Third Reich. Uh, grace uh, is something that God has thrown his weight behind. And grace will triumph. Grace will accomplish everything that God intends it to accomplish. He who has begun a good work in you will accomplish it, perfect it, finish it to the day of Jesus Christ. So, all earthly kingdoms have a beginning. Uh, Perhaps a, a military victory that brings a new monarch to the throne. Perhaps a, a peaceful succession where another a person uh, is elected and takes over the, uh, the, uh, the government and uh, begins to, to rule in their administration. What is the origin of the kingdom of grace about which Paul is writing? When was it inaugurated? What was the inauguration? of the kingdom of grace. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 20, he says it was before the foundation of the world. In that verse, Peter is referring to a decision that was made in the eternal counsels of the Godhead in eternity past. It was decided that God would save a remnant of humanity. That the Son would come live a perfect life, and die for those whom God had chosen. That the Spirit would convict them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. Theologians call that the covenant of redemption. And it took place before sin even entered the world. This plan of salvation that God has set forth is not plan B. It, it wasn't something that, you know, God tried a couple of things and they didn't work. And he said, all right, I think we'll do this, uh, we'll do this grace thingy here. We, you know, it, it might work. We, we don't know for sure. So we'll go to plan B. Seriously? You, you, you don't have a higher conception of God than that? In the eternal covenant that we are talking about, all three persons of the Holy Trinity are involved. God the Father was determined to demonstrate the nature and the power of His grace before the host of heaven. And so to do that, He created 
a world of creatures known as men and women. He allowed them to fall into sin. He allowed sin to reign over them, to enslave them by its power, leading them to physical and spiritual death. But when sin had done its worst, when the condition of the race seemed to be most helpless, God sent a heavenly person of infinite grace and righteousness to rescue them and to bring them in to the kingdom of love. Who, who was it? Who was it that came to do that? God the Son. Jesus, in effect, said to the Trinity, Here am I, send me. And so Jesus Christ invaded this world, came born of a virgin, born as a baby, lived a perfect life, walked on the earth 33 and a half years, keeping God's law in every respect, loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, every moment of his existence, loving his neighbor as himself, and then died a death that he did not deserve. He had not broken the law. He had not sinned. The wages of sin is death. Jesus was paid wages he didn't earn. We earned them. He died in our place. So the covenant of grace was enacted to establish a kingdom of grace. And Jesus Christ would die for a people that God would give to him. God the Holy Spirit was also present at the inauguration of the kingdom. And he covenanted with the Father and the Son that those who were chosen to come to faith in the crucified, risen Lord would enter it by him convicting them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. So the inauguration of the kingdom is seen in the councils of the Godhead in eternity past. The Holy Trinity involved in bringing about this kingdom. And every earthly kingdom has a period of, uh, of growth in which the reign of the, of the new monarch has been declared. Territory is conquered. Those who are part of the kingdom or to be a part of it are drawn into it. And there is also a parallel here to God's kingdom. We see the announcement of the kingdom. God wasted no time announcing the kingdom of grace. On the same day that Adam and Eve sinned, thus welcoming the contrary reign of sin and death into the world, God appeared to them in the Garden of Eden and he gave them a promise of redemption. Genesis 3.15, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Speaking to the serpent, Satan. And he said, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Satan would strike the heel of the seed of the woman. An allusion, I believe, to the virgin birth, by the way, because women don't have seed. Men do. And so, here is the first promise of the reign of grace. That, that the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, would crush the head of the serpent. Theologians call that the proto-evangelon, the first evangel. The first time that this promise of grace is mentioned. 
a prophecy of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the atonement that he would bring. And although Adam and Eve did not understand all of it, they understood enough to believe God. They understood enough to look for the coming of a Redeemer. And so became the first citizens of the kingdom. Adam and Eve, saved by God's grace. Then we have the arrangements for the kingdom. The Old Testament records a long period of preparation for this new king's coming. And again, the God of grace is doing it all. God established a, a godly line in the midst of the world's ungodliness. A line in which his name was remembered. And the faith in the coming Redeemer was kept alive. Seth, the third son of Adam and Eve, who replaced godly Abel after Cain killed him, was the first in this new line. After Seth came the godly antediluvians, those who lived before the time of the flood. Enoch, who walked with God. Noah, who received grace at the time of the great flood. Later, Abraham is chosen. And then Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's sons, the twelve patriarchs of Israel, who lead the twelve tribes. There were priests like Aaron, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, godly kings like David. You come on up to the time of the birth of Jesus, you have godly people like Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, Simeon and Anna, those who were looking for this promised Redeemer, this Redeemer that had been promised ever since that Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. And all of these, looking forward to the coming of Christ, are saved by grace. They come into the kingdom by grace. And they were all a part of the preparation of God's kingdom. Then we come to the time of the death of Jesus Christ, the very center and the very basis of this reign of grace. And so Paul unfolds his illustration and say he says that grace reigns, watch it, through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through righteousness. Grace reigns, but it reigns through righteousness. God doesn't just simply forgive. God doesn't say, oh, you know what? Sin's not that serious. Look, I'm just going to forgive y'all. Don't worry about it. No biggie. No, no, no. God is righteous. And God reigns through righteousness. Sin has to be dealt with. God's righteousness has to be taken into account. God does not nullify his law. He doesn't just waive justice. Jesus Christ dies in the place of sinners. We looked at that in chapter 3, that he became the propitiation. That is, he satisfied the justice of God. God is both just and the justifier of who? Those who believe in Jesus. God remains righteous. God doesn't waive sin. God punishes sin. God brings his wrath against sin. In the person of Jesus Christ. He doesn't overlook it. Christ dies in our place and God counts his divine righteousness as ours. It is imputed 
to those of us who believe. That's what Paul's been writing the entire book of Romans to explain. That's what we looked at in, in, in chapter 3 and 4. This doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's how he ends chapter 5. You want to see the, the nature of the kingdom of grace? No better place to look at it than at the cross. There is where grace shines the brightest. Christ dies, the just for the unjust. Christ dies, the sinless for the sinner. For he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is in Christ, it is by the death of Jesus Christ that eternal life is poured out for the many. Then we see the administration of this kingdom. It takes more than territory to make a kingdom. No, no one gets excited about a king who rules over nothing but a desert. A kingdom requires subjects. Therefore, God is in the business of providing subjects for this kingdom. How are the members of Adam's race, those who are ruled by sin, made a part of the kingdom of grace? How do they come from the kingdom of sin and death into the kingdom of righteousness and grace? What, what is the arrangements that God has made? How does God do it? Theologians, again, speak of something called uh, an order of salvation. If, if Dr. Arnold were up here, he would talk about the ordo salutis. You know, it, you know people who are smart do that. The ordo salutis. And we, we kind of, yeah, maybe it's not set in stone, but it's pretty clear in the Bible. First, you have foreknowledge, that God takes saving notice of people. He sets his favor on them. Foreknowledge, by the way, doesn't just mean that God knows everything that's going to happen. He does. But that's God's omniscience, specifically. Foreknowledge in the Bible really never speaks of what people will do. It speaks of the people. God talks about whom he foreknew. God sets his grace on some. Then there's predestination, election, and the eternal counsels of the Godhead. God determines who he will save, who will he bring to Christ. Then there is effectual calling, not just the external call of the gospel, not a preacher standing and saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the external call. It goes to everyone. But there is an effectual calling where the Spirit convicts a person of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. Like calling Lazarus back to life from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. Could Lazarus have refused and stayed in the grave? No. It was the voice of God calling. Could the light have refused to shine when God said at the creation of the universe, let there be light? No. Is grace irresistible? Yes. God accomplishes the purpose that he intends. Then there is regeneration. We're all dead in trespasses and sin, the Bible says. We are born dead in trespasses and sins. And we must be regenerated. Then comes repentance and faith. Now, you know, these are chronological 
They, they, they may happen in a, or a logical, this is a logical progression. Chronologically, they all seem to happen kind of at the same time. Then there is justification. God imputes all of our sin to Christ and imputes all of his righteousness to us. Then sanctification. The, the, the new life of the believer worked out in increasing growth in holiness. Good works. We grow in grace. And finally, glorification. Let us love our God supremely. Let us love each other too. Let us love and pray for sinners till he makes all things new. Then he'll call us home to heaven at his table. We'll sit down. Christ will gird himself and serve us with sweet manna all around. One day we will be freed from even the presence of sin. We will be glorified. Our salvation will be complete then. There's, there's no more glorious unfolding of the kingdom of, of grace. Nothing more powerful, nothing more wonderful can be imagined. It is the power of God providing for those who really don't even want it. I mean, it, it's not like people are clamoring to get into the kingdom of God apart from his conviction of sin of them. You know, people don't, they don't even like grace. And apart from it, they would absolutely certainly be lost. If grace were just a handout, an offer of help, we'd all perish. If grace was not irresistible, we'd all die in our sins. If God just said, hey, you know, here's grace, you want it? Take it or leave it, it's up to you. It's all up to you. I'm a gentleman, I don't force anybody to do anything. We would all say, thanks, but no thanks. I don't need it. God doesn't do that. Grace is a power that overcomes the power of sin. The reign of grace is more powerful than the reign of sin and death. And the only reason that any of us are saved is that grace first provides the way of salvation. And then actually reaches out to turn us from our sin. To make us alive. To give us the gift of faith that we may come to salvation. Now we looked at the inauguration of God's kingdom, of its increase, of its atonement. What can we say about God's intention and the nature of the reign of God's grace? God's intention in grace is to do us good, always. Grace always gives, and sin always takes away. Always. Grace always gives, and sin always takes away. First of all, grace is inexhaustible. I mean by that, that it is overflowing with benefits. We can think of a kingdom as good and yet it could be a very stringent kingdom one that has rules and, and regulations everywhere making hard demands making impossible demands uh, God does demand obedience in the Christian life sacrifice is required but when we think of the reign of grace we usually don't think of it, of it in terms so much of sacrifice and denial as fullness of life and provision. The reign of grace 
is not something that the children of God find difficult or odious or hard. Again, grace always gives and sin always takes away. Sin tells us that we can have all we ever wanted and the way of grace is deprivation. Sin says, I look at them Christians, they don't ever have any fun. If you want to have fun, you go the way of sin. Look at all the things you can't do if you're a Christian. And so like the prodigal, we listen to the bad king. We listen to sin. We take our inheritance into a far country where we don't have to listen to the good king's voice or respond to the father's wise will. And what happens there? We spend our assets on wild living. We waste our inheritance. We come to the end of our days and it's all gone. Sin has taken it all. And we find out as the prodigal did that sin never gives us anything. In the end we look at the tyrant named Sin whom we have followed and we ask for his help. And Sin laughs at us as he reaches out to take away even life itself. Follow Sin and sin will rob you of your innocence and of your character. Follow sin, and sin will wither away your health. Follow sin, and sin will turn to ashes even the common precious things of life. Things like friendship and love and laughter, the innocence of children, hope and contentment. Follow sin, and sin will usher you into damnation and will smirk and sneer as you stagger through the door. How different is the king whose name is Grace. Grace sees us staggering, comes alongside to help us, to bear us up. Grace sees us destitute and pours out the inexhaustible riches of Christ and the Father into our laps. Sin sees us dying and imparts eternal life. Paul will say in the next chapter, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace says, what do you need? Tell me. Tell me anything at all. And then grace provides for all of our needs in accordance with God's perfect wisdom, his invincible power, and his unlimited supply. Because of grace, the writer of the book of Hebrews urges us to come boldly to a throne of grace where we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. And then grace is not only inexhaustible, it's invincible. There was a, there was a fellow who was a baseball manager years ago. Some of you would remember him by the name of Leo DeRocher. And one of DeRocher's favorite sayings was, nice guys finish last. And in the world, that's often true. In this world, evil often triumphs. In this world, those who are wicked, those who blaspheme God, those who curse God, often seem to come out on top. And so we may ask the question, can anything as wonderful as grace really triumph in the end? To be sure, grace offers everything. But how can we know that somehow at the end grace 
will not be overcome by sin. That might be possible if we were only speaking of grace in human terms. If it was my grace or your grace that we were talking about, sin might take those good gifts away. But it's not my grace that's reigning. It's not your grace that's reigning. It's not any man's grace that's reigning. It's God's grace that is reigning. And it is invincible. And it will triumph the grace of God the Almighty. Who can, who or what can stand against the power of God or his purposes? Paul's going to write to us at the end of Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one that died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who could conquer grace? Who could overcome the grace of God? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. Regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, listen, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am certain, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What can separate you from grace? Nothing. No, I mean, how, how much clearer could Paul have made it? Nothing in all of creation. Grace is invincible. Grace is invincible. Grace will triumph through many dangers, toils, and snares. I have already come. Disgrace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Grace will take us home. So, Brother Bob, you don't know what I'm going through right now. I'm go I've, I've, I've got sickness. I've got sickness in, in my body. I've got sickness in my family. I'm facing the death of a loved one. Grace will take you home. Well, you know, I've got problems with my children. Grace will take you home. I've got, I've got financial problems. Grace will take you home. The grace of God is greater than anything in all of creation. I thought of two hymns this week as, as I, I thought about ending the, these studies that we've done on the grace of God. One is we don't sing too much anymore. It's called a debtor to mercy alone. And I thought of it because of a word that's in it, indelible. It says this, My name from the palms of his hands 
eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given, more happy but not more secure than the glorified spirits in heaven. Nothing can erase that which is indelible. And grace is written in indelible characters. It is forever and forever. For the reign of grace, there will never be defeat. And for the reign of grace, there is no end. The other hymn that I thought of is one that we often sing. Probably everybody in the English-speaking world has sung it. A hymn by Charles Wesley. Beautiful words. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. There are no triumphs anywhere like those. There are none so happy or so certain. Let grace triumph in you. Yield to it. Yield to the grace of God in Christ. Open your arms to grace. Come to the winning side. If you have not put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, come to him. He died for your sins, was buried and rose the third day. And if you will but trust him for salvation, believe on him for the forgiveness of sin, he will give you this grace, this eternal life. That nothing, that no power in all of creation can overcome. Believer, trust Him. This is a reign of grace we're in. Trust Him. Rest in Him. The song that we sang this morning based on Deuteronomy 32. The eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Rest. Trust in the everlasting, triumphant, eternal grace of God. Walk in it every day. Let's pray. Our Father and our God.